The German and Korean versions of fermented cabbage are made differently and have different qualities. Kimchi is fermented with more salt and at a lower temperature than sauerkraut. When ready, kimchi tastes like a sour, crunchy pickle that's less acidic but more salty than sauerkraut. The two play supporting roles on the plate, sauerkraut as a refreshing side dish for rich meats and kimchi jazzing up bland rice. Hootie just got hungry for some rich meat and a bowl of rice. I'm Hootie, and you're listening to Hootie the Foodie. He may be 10 years old, but he's an expert. You're listening to Hootie the Foodie. My guest today is originally from Siberia, Russia, a fellow foodie. She started out making traditional cakes, cupcakes, macaroons, and other pastries. Recognizing the demand for allergy-free baking, she learned to bake gluten-free sourdough bread as well as vegan and gluten-free pastries. Once she and her husband started to eat cleaner foods, they noticed significant improvements in their health. To maintain those changes, she learned to make and eat fermented foods like sauerkraut, kimchi, and others. She continued to learn about gut health and nutrition, gaining certification from the Health Coach Institute, and is now a culinary health coach. Anastasia Vera, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hootie. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. What was it like growing up in Siberia? So I grew up on the land and we would get our fresh vegetables from the, you know, grannies and we would pickle it and then we would eat it. And that's how we would survive during the winter because winter in Siberia is really harsh. So that's pretty much sums it up how (laughs) I grew up in Siberia. (laughs) When and why did you come to the United States? I came to United States in 2015 because I got married and my husband brought me here. When and how did you learn to bake? So I started to bake because I was really bored at home and I needed to do something. So I was like, I like sweets, so let's start making some sweets. So I started learning and it just fascinated me so much. I started to make cakes and cupcakes and all the traditional pastries. But, uh, you know, eventually I grew into something more healthier, like gluten-free baking and vegan baking. Did you like bake a lot more when COVID hit because you were at home a lot more? Uh, yeah, I could say that I started making more breads. <laughs> when and why did you switch to gluten-free and allergy-free baking? So I went to Spain and I took a class uh, with really good chef um, about breads. And I was fascinated about bread in general and making it sourdough bread. But then I also took class over there with one of the um, friends. She has gluten-free bakery in Canada, in Toronto. And I was just fascinated about what you can make with non-traditional flours. So I decided when I come back to Los Angeles, I would switch to gluten-free baking because there is a very high demand right now. There's a lot of people who cannot eat wheat or rye, you know, they just cannot tolerate all those grains. So I started to do this in order to accommodate the needs of those people. But then I also liked it myself. What kind of flours? So I use uh, brown rice flour, I use teff flour, buckwheat, tapioca flour. So because in wheat flour, we already have all the elements we need. 
in gluten-free baking, we need to bring different flours to make the same qualities. What do you mean by the elements? So let's say we need wheat. When we have wheat, the bread rises really quickly and it's fluffy and it tastes really good. But when we have gluten-free flours, every flour has a different qualities. So let's say brown rice doesn't really taste like anything, so it's very plain. So I would add tap flour or buckwheat flour to make it taste better. That sounds complicated. Was that hard to learn and master? It was different, but with practice and time, it gets better. How long did it take you? I'd say probably two months to master the bread. Yeah. I thought you were going to say like five years. (laughs) No, lesser than that. (laughs) (laughs) What about all the pastries? So first I was uh, offering pastries, you know, I got the cottage license so people could buy pastries and breads from me that I did in my home. But then eventually I started learning a lot about different elements like sugar, for example, and I started moving away from sugar more and more and more. So that's how I only started offering just the breads and uh, pastries kind of went on the back. (laughs) How did you segue into fermented foods? It was honestly just intuition. So intuitively, when we changed the diet, we started seeing all this, like, clears up the skin, you know, the digestive issues went away. But the moment you start eating those foods again, it's all going back. So I thought to myself, like, how can I make this stick so that I wouldn't have to be gluten-free for life or dairy-free for life, you know, or never be able to eat anything with sugar? So intuitively, I thought, you know, I need to start pickling. Maybe that's, you know, what I need. And I found someone in London. She was giving the courses in fermentation, and I did not know what fermentation means. But when I learned about it, I thought, yes, this is exactly what I was looking for. So I started fermenting in my kitchen and uh, practicing. And that's how I saw like a huge impact on our health within the month. Your husband had a few health conditions that improved with changes to his diet. What were the issues and what changes to a diet helped to resolve them? Well, he had a lot of digestive issues with digestion. He had acid reflux and also he had multiple allergies. And back in 2007, he was diagnosed with arthritis. So he was able to maintain his arthritis with the diet. But sometimes from time to time, he would get like, you know, swollen uh, joints. And then when we start eating more fermented foods, basically we start eating small portions every day. Uh, Within the months, he seen the changes in his health. Also, he didn't have acne anymore. He didn't have acid reflux as much. And so that's how we saw it, you know, and also allergies, some of the allergies cleared up. What are some foods that can be fermented? Anything, anything can be fermented. In fact, like fish, like meat, all the veggies, all the berries, anything can be fermented. What is it about the fermented foods that are so healing? So if you don't know, or maybe you know that in our digestive tract, we have bacteria. We have lots of microorganisms living. It's about 100 trillion different microorganisms living in our gut. And so when we bring those foods that contain also the living bacteria, we actually naturally boost in our gut health. And so when our gut is 
you know, maintained in a good condition, then all the health conditions are also will be better. I have an episode of the podcast on kombucha and recently brewed a batch of beach for the first mm-hmm. time. I also did an episode on sourdough and I'm planning to tackle that in my kitchen next. After the break, I'm looking forward to learning more about sauerkraut and kimchi, including how the audience and I can make our own. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Anastasia Vera. We're back to Hootie the Foodie. Welcome back to Hootie the Foodie. We're talking about fermented cabbage with health coach Anastasia Vera. Sauerkraut and kimchi are both fermented cabbage. What are some of the differences and what do they have in common? So the sauerkraut is made with just cabbage. And sometimes we add carrots and some spices like fennel. And kimchi has actually about 10 different ingredients in it. We're talking about original Napa kimchi because the kimchi is not just one kind. There's many, many different kinds of kimchi. Like what? Like sometimes there's uh, cucumber kimchi or kimchi made with different other vegetables. And so in Korea, they basically do kimchi out of any vegetable. So it's not only cabbage? Not just cabbage, yes. What are the other ingredients? So in kimchi, we use ginger, we use garlic, we also get radishes. And if you're familiar with daikon radish, so we use different kind of cabbage. It's a Napa cabbage. It's not just a regular cabbage that we use for sauerkraut. So we have many, many different ingredients. And we actually can even put some fish like anchovies, like a dried anchovies into kimchi to just boost the properties. So that's why kimchi is considered to be one of the superfoods in the world. Are there different health benefits to kimchi versus sauerkraut? So I would say this. Both are great for our health. But right now we're talking about diversity of the different bacteria. So if we take our cabbage, we only have maybe, let's say, five different bacteria, right? And then we start fermenting, it grows and all that. So we only have five different types. But if we talk about kimchi, every single vegetable will have this set of bacteria on it. So we have much, much rich food in these terms. Can you walk us through the process of making home fermented sauerkraut and kimchi? Oh yeah, sure. So the sauerkraut is easy to make. Kimchi takes a lot more time and it's a process. You know, there's like three different steps. So there's not going to be enough time for me to walk you through that. But I can walk you through sauerkraut for sure. And I actually have my cabbage here today also. (laughs) I just bought it on farmer's market this morning. So I'm going to be doing sauerkraut later tonight. So what you need is to take the cabbage and then you want to have your scale and weight it because we want to be precise in how much salt we want to take. So we need, in general, we need 2% of the salt. So what would you do is to take your cabbage, weight it, and then that number you would divide by 100 and multiply by 2. And that's how you get your salt amount. I forgot to say that in fermentation, we actually use a metric system because you can get more precise number. So let's say if the cabbage weighs about one kilo, then you divide it by 100 and then you multiply by two. So you will get 20 grams of salt. So yeah, you would shred your cabbage 
and then you would add your salt and then you will massage it to get the juices out of the cabbage and that brine you will use to ferment. So what you will need to do is to get a clean jar and then you put that shredded cabbage and you put it really, really tight so that brine will go on top of it. So you put all of your cabbage in the jar and you leave it outside in the room temperature for about five days. Of course, you would check it out every day, open it up, see what's going on. And you will see that it will be bubbling as much in first and second day, but it will be lesser, lesser and lesser. And then at the end, you can try it and see if you like the taste. If you like it, you can then transfer it to the fridge. And that's how you have your sauerkraut. Took me a while to digest that, but I got it. Try it's really easy. Yeah. And you can also add fennel. And you can also add the carrots or different other veggies. It's up to you. Is the jar sealed? Uh, the jar is not sealed, no. You just close it tight and then you can reopen it next day and see what's going on in there. So it's not like pickling when we really, really tight seal the jars. And that's the difference, actually, because when we pickle, we kill all the bacteria so that we get all the sterilized produce, you know. And in fermentation, we actually want to grow that bacteria. Do you add liquid or does it make its own? It makes its own. So we have brine and that liquid that comes from the cabbage, that what ferments it, that what helps it. How long does it take? To ferment? About five days. What are the basic steps of making kimchi? Well, the basic steps would be first you get your Napa cabbage. If you're making the uh, regular kimchi, you would soak it in salt for about a night. Uh, next day, you would get it out and then put other veggies and make a you know past with uh, red pepper and ginger and uh, garlic. So you would then rub it off into a Napa cabbage and you also will put it in the jars or in Korea, they actually put it in a big pot and put it into a soil. So it's actually ferments for about six months inside of those pots. And that's how they get their, you know, original kimchi. But here we don't have that capacity, so we can use just the jars. So we, we would just put that in a jar and also leave it to ferment for about three days. Kimchi ferments faster than sauerkraut. <gasps> I'm like, six months? <laughs> yes. Is it better to eat fermented food at a certain time of day? No, not really. I would recommend eat it every day, but in a very small amount. Because it's probiotic-rich food, it's, it has living bacteria in it, so you don't want to distress your gut by bringing new guys to live in there, right? So just start with a small amount, and then, you know, you can see it doesn't matter what time of the day. I'm curious, how are other people around the world eating fermented food? Oh, that's a great question. So if we took all of the countries in the world, we can see that the fermentation was there for very, very long time. And every culture has a fermented foods. So let's say in Iceland, they have a fermented shark. <laughs> Sounds great, huh? <laughs> uh, Would you try it? Uh -uh. <laughs> so let's say in, in Germany and Eastern Europe, including Russia, we eat a lot of sauerkraut. And also we have a rye kvass. It's a type of a drink fermented drink and then if we go to korea there's all kinds of kimchi in china they ferment everything and i can even name one right now there's a lot in japan for example they eat a lot of natto do you know what that is no idea 
So natto is a fermented soybeans and it's very, very slimy. <laughs> One of the favorite foods in Japan. <laughs> You've noticed that by healing the gut, women notice improvement of symptoms in a condition called the PCOS. What is PCOS and how do fermented foods help? So PCOS is the condition, it translates as polycystic ovary syndrome. So, you know, many women has this syndrome and it's gynecological problem or issue, but we actually can clear it up with our gut. If we get to heal our gut, so we can also maintain the balance in our hormones and that's how we can impact PCOS. Are there other specific foods that you use in relations to achieving specific health goals? Uh, yeah, let's say here we know a lot about yogurt, right? Yogurt is also fermented food, but it's dairy and sometimes dairy runs inflammation. And so sometimes when we talk to someone who has that problem and we want to take them off dairy, so we would also take off the yogurt. So in this case, I would offer someone to eat fermented vegetables instead of yogurt. Anastasia. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where can we find you online? You can follow me on Instagram. It's anastasia.vera.coach. That's my main page. And the Facebook group, it's Anastasia Vera PCOS Health Coach. Tomorrow's some audience. Thanks for listening. I'd love if you shared me with your friends. I'm Hoodie, I'm Hungry, and you just listened to Hoodie the Hoodie. You've been listening to Hootie the Foodie. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, make sure to like, rate, and review in your podcast app. And follow on Instagram at Hootie the Foodie. Till next time.